about the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the city on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and CJ, CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca. I'm Andy Longhurst. I'm your host for the next hour. And on the program, we'll hear about the big download affecting cities as federal and provincial governments move more responsibilities onto municipalities and what this means for uh, these very cities. And in the second part of the show, um, we'll hear about the launch of Women Transforming Cities, a new Vancouver-based initiative. And also on the program, we're going to hear about the possible redevelopment of Vancouver's historic Avalon Dairy site in South Vancouver. So we've got a lot on the program. Stay with us. And thanks for being here for another edition of The City here on CATR and CJSF. And um, I've got Charlie Beresford on the line. She's the executive director for, at the Center for Civic Governance. And um, Charlie, tell me, what is the big download? And this has um, sparked my attention and something that has, um, uh, has huge implications for um, large to small municipalities. Um, can you tell me what this is? Sure, absolutely. Be, be delighted to, and I should just uh, let you know that our Center for Civic Governance is actually um, an initiative of Columbia Institute, so it's one of the programs that we offer here, uh, and it was established specifically to support uh, local leadership because there is such scope for many of the challenges that we that we face as a society locally. Mm-hmm. At the same time, as you rightly pointed out, there's a real challenge around resourcing. And it started to uh, become exacerbated. You may remember uh, this. Um, Paul Martin, former uh, prime minister and former finance minister, was very famous for balancing Canada's budgets. And he did that by uh, flashing supports to provinces and, indeed, flashing supports uh, to municipalities and local governments. So what's happened is that a number of services that are no longer being supported federally or provincially are are now being uh, picked up or being forced onto municipalities. So a list of those would include programs for um, supporting immigration, certainly uh, programs on the environment, programs around supporting Aboriginal people, affordable housing, public health, emergency preparedness, public security. It's kind of a long list. Absolutely. 
for you um, and uh, for the Center for Civic Governance and the Columbia Institute, um, is this something that is new? <laughs> Are we seeing... <laughs> I mean, well, just this, to contextualize this really what's this going on. as I said, really yeah. started in, in the time with um, with Paul Martin and the Liberal government. Yeah. Um, the, 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 there, were, there have been one or two recent upticks. Uh, there was a decision just a few years ago to apportion uh, part of the uh, gas tax uh, to municipalities for infrastructure programs. It's a small amount of money, but it's very fondly regarded. And the other thing is, and you may remember this also, there was um, a huge uh, infrastructure amount of money uh, made available uh, to deal with the most recent downturn in the last two or three years. Mm-hmm. So those are the two exceptions. Yeah. Well, I, I, I asked that question, and I think it's important because I think of um, something like uh, the federal support uh, for um, social housing in Canada, and a lot of those CMHC um, supported um, programs are no longer with us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, are we seeing are we seeing more increasingly um, a reticent uh, federal government that is is basically it's it's downloading a number of um, of other things and just reading today mm-hmm. and actually in the Globe and Mail and. Um, uh, the uh, AFN uh, chief, Sean Atlio, saying, you know, it's four years after um, the, apology, the formal apology for residential schools from the Canadian government, yet you actually have to, you actually have to back that up with action. And it can't just be a symbolic apology. There has to be substance to what, um, what's, what's in that apology. And that has to come through support for Aboriginal communities and through, um, in many ways, funding for different ways to address um, education or, or the lack thereof in, in a lot of um, an Aboriginal-based education. So it was just one example where I see more and more we're, we're not at the local level, that support is not there. Well, it's not, and unfortunately what's been happening is the erosion of the, uh, of the social infrastructure, for lack of a better word, as well as the physical infrastructure. So, for example, we have more people who are homeless on the street because of uh, uh, short-sighted policies on behalf of our provincial government. And then there is lack of access to housing, again, resulting from you know, short-sighted policies on behalf of the federal government as well. So it's all building on itself. Uh, one of the other challenges for municipalities in Canada is that Revenue is largely tied to the property tax base, and that's quite restrictive. It really amounts to only 8% of the total tax pie. Mm-hmm. So the other two levels of government uh, have you know, 92% of the tax to work with, and yet uh, down, uh, responsibilities have been downloaded and infrastructure has been changed and eroded, and we still have people who need services. Mm-hmm. The municipalities are, you know, trying to rise to the challenge. The, uh, there's um, uh, two very well-known urban sociologists who theorized um, the urban growth machine and talking about cities' dependency on property tax revenue. For a city like Vancouver, where we see development um, really um, probably the most visible um, and, if you want to say, something that, that keeps this economy going as a region and, and locally, 
Um, where does that put, put cities like Vancouver that are so dependent on, on that growth paradigm um, and often not really able to address things like affordability mm-hmm. and other issues that, that um, you know, community services or community amenities, um, where does that put cities? Cities in a bind. Yeah. Um, and I, I was going to tell you um, that the Federation of Canadian Municipalities met last week in Saskatoon. Mm-hmm. So there were you know, councillors from across the country. And one of the things that they were calling for was a continuation of the infrastructure program that I just described. Mm-hmm. So what they've said is, look, there's a hundred and twenty-three billion dollar shortfall in the physical infrastructure of cities. This is without the services. This is just the the roads, the bridges, the the sewage systems, and so on. And they're saying, look, we you know we need to have a a, a way to count on this revenue coming in. We need to have a, a, a guarantee from the federal government that the fund will be included and will stay in place so that we can deal with these questions. Because what's happening is a lot of that infrastructure is wearing out. Right. It, and I might add that it's also um, an opportunity to try and make sure that the infrastructure that gets built now is green infrastructure that's going to help to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and looking ahead to the adaptation that climate change is going to be forcing on us where we live. Mm-hmm. Do you th- from your analysis, do you think cities are likely to be taking the brunt of that burden in dealing with mitigating the effects of climate change? Well, cities are, in an oppor- are, are actually very well poised to do a lot of that work. Uh, there are lots of... Um, sort of decisions that cities have control over that do impact greenhouse gas emissions. So, for example, if you've got um, a policy where you're helping your city to to be complete and walkable, you're going to make a huge difference because you keep people out of the cars and you make better energy efficiency. Right. And um, if you're going to be, you know, reviewing how you do your energy and maybe you're going to be supporting community energy initiatives. There was actually this great story in the Sun today about, uh, about the uh, Olympic development and the, and the um, capturing the heat from the sewage and redistributing that. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of ideas. So there's, there's really huge scope for cities to take a lead here, which, uh, and many of them are, 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 are doing that. The other thing to remember is that most of the citizenry in the world today is moving to cities. Right. So as our population explodes around the province, at the same time people are traveling to cities. It's something like eighty percent live in uh, within sixty uh, miles of the of the ocean, which, given climate change, actually isn't isn't necessarily going to be wonderful. And the rising ocean levels. Mm-hmm. Well, I think about a city like Vancouver, and already they've uh, the city has looked at changing um, development guidelines to take into account um, that very issue of ri- rising, uh, the rising tides or rising ocean level. So I, but I mean, on the other hand, cities may be very well positioned to d- be on the front line and deal with these um, issues and address them. But doesn't this also, uh, it can come down to, you know, very bluntly, a, a real burden financially. Oh, absolutely. Um, so... So decisions around zoning and infrastructure 
probably probably takes vision more than anything, vision and commitment. Um, and so, for example, if you make a commitment not to add any more sewage infrastructure or road infrastructure, then you're going to be encouraging density and infill. Right. So that's, that would be, that, that part takes vision, and that starts with understanding what your city is doing in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. But the funding is very important. And uh, there was, in fact, according to the FCM, a study done by the OECD, which was talking about what kinds of financial tools are available to Canadian municipalities. And the study made the point that that, that much of the rest of the world has, has more leverage than Canadian municipalities do. Uh, it, it calls Canadian cities uh, relatively weak party uh, powers and resources. So there's a real case to be made for having a look at what's available to cities. There's, there's more tools that could be granted to, to help deal with the downloading more effectively. Right. We often refer to cities as creatures of the province. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Vancouver, through the Vancouver Charter, which grants the city uh, a limited uh, array of, of powers, um, do we need to really evaluate that and go to the provin- go to provincial laws and and evaluate whether cities have the tools they need? Does it need to? Does it happen at that level, or is it? Conv- it does. It, yeah, it does. It's going. It's because each each each. As you're quite right, it's the provinces whose legislation that really details what kind of powers municipalities have. So there really does need to be a look in each province about uh, what's possible. I would think that uh, you know, starting with what's happening in other parts of the world might be a good a good measure. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, uh, both levels of government need to do a much better job of restoring the social infrastructure, so that there's you know funding available to help with affordable housing, and so that there's better health services for people and better education services. Those are the, those kinds of services are very very hard for a city to do much about on eight percent of the tax base. Right, and on the climate change front, although you know forty three percent of uh, of uh, municipal decisions will impact climate change, there's going to be some funding parts in there, as you quite rightly pointed out, and of course that doesn't have anything to do with emissions from the uh, from the oil and gas industry, for example. Those are those are areas where the province and the federal government needs to step up to the plate. I want to ask you because a lot of critics would say that um, you know. This is a time when uh, we're seeing uh, that austerity needs to occur and that um, both provinces and, and uh, the federal government need to be cutting back. Um, but what role um, does uh, does tax policy play into this? And this is also at a time when we're seeing, um, we're seeing a real shift in the burden of taxation away from uh, corporate and business to onto... onto um, uh, that, that's a very good point because really... Um <laughs> Taxes really are about trying to provide services that we all uh, that we all can partake in, mm-hmm. and, and so I think it's really important for people to to understand that taxes are the things that bring you public services that you value. They're part of how you build a community. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, people do want to see very sort of responsible use of their tax dollars. That's very uh, that's very understandable. 
but again, that property tax, income tax distribution isn't working very well for the needs of people in their communities. Right. So there's some opportunity for redirecting and rethinking how the tax policy is applied. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to ask you, Charlie, what um, what is being done right now? And uh, obviously, um, leaders of municipal governments are... Um, finding ways to strategize of, of how to deal with this. And this is when they get together. Um, they This is often and has recently been a, a big topic. Um, is it going to be effective enough, though? And what what's the tipping point? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know how to answer that <laughs> point. <laughs> the, the, the financing question has been, you know, raised at every local government organization across the country, I'm sure, for, you know, since the cutback started, since the infrastructure started eroding. Um, I think uh, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities at this point is really thinking that they might be able to make a really strong case for continued infrastructure dollars because those were created quite a a bit of economic stimulus in the country. Mm Mm-hmm. How does, that, how does that play with the conservative government, though, set on austerity as the solution? Very good question. <laughs> Very good question. How does question. that get reconciled? I, I would imagine that the city leaders would appreciate constituents raising this very point with any, <laughs> with any members of the, of the members of parliament, actually. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I would think so. Yeah. Um, hard to say what's going to happen with that. Right. Um, but there's, you know, concerted lobbying efforts going on, if you will, from these um, individual organizations that represent local governments. And lots of individual municipalities are finding their advocacy voice as well. And for you, what would what would the ideal arrangement look like um, if we were to address, um, stop the downloading um, mm-hmm. of responsibilities um, onto municipalities um, and actually look at a long-term financially um, sustainable arrangement where cities can, and I think in many ways they're the best providers because they're, they're the most accessible to citizens. Mm-hmm. But what does that arrangement look like? Well, I, I think there needs to be a conversation, uh, and I think it starts with saying, all right, how do we compare around the world? What's the size of our gap and what kind of supports do we need? I, I think that's the first step. But I think in addition to that, we're going to see a call for restoration of um, federal money that supports affordable housing, a return of social infrastructure, if you will, Um, another piece of social infrastructure that we might want to look at, and we haven't done this effectively in the country at all, is the piece around child care. That's another piece of social infrastructure that's really important to be returned. Um, But I think that conversation around... How can cities be given more tools is one that really needs to be launched. Mm-hmm. And are you optimistic um, if we see uh, the NDP as a center-left um, government uh, win in the next provincial election? Are you optimistic to see this this discussion really embraced um, by that new leadership? Or well, are we likely to see the status quo? <laughs> Well, here's what I think. I think every time there's a change of government, there's an uh, absolute window. And this is the time when people are out listening to what people have to say. So uh, this is the time to raise those kinds of issues as the policies do being developed and the way forward. Uh, But 
I would hope to see that a new government would also have a uh, provincial climate action plan that would also talk about how they could facilitate cities in participating in climate action, that they would do the same thing as they work through affordable housing and the rising income gap. So, you know, all in a time of uh, government change, there's always high hopes. Absolutely. Well, Charlie, uh, we'll leave it at that. Um, if people want to find out more about the Center for Civic Governance um, of the Columbia Institute, um, where would you direct them to find more oh, information? Well, please join us at www.civicgovernance.ca. We post, uh, we post things regularly, our own research, and we do a kind of a news clipping service. So I think you'll find lots to interest you. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the program and uh, look forward to talking with you more about the, this issue, among other issues as well. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. And that was Charlie Beresford of the Center for Civic Governance, which is part of the Columbia Institute. And uh, we're going to take a quick break, um, but after our music break, uh, we're going to be talking with Ian Mass, and he's a resident in South Vancouver, and he's been um, very active in uh, working to try to preserve the agricultural um, legacy of Avalon Dairy in South Vancouver um, and look to see um, redevelopment um, and the, the retention of um, the, the heritage land and uh, the protect, protect, productive <laughs> capacity of that land. So stay with us. Um, this is The City on CITR 101.9 FM, streaming at citr.ca. Cable FM 88.5 and also syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM Burnaby and online at cjsf.ca. We'll be back in a moment. Yeah. 
This month in the June issue of Discorder, we chat with Needles and Pins about superstitions, disband some winter woes with Young Pacific, meet the fellows of Capital Six and their heartfelt psych folk jams, and find out about the glamorous life of a touring indie band in our feature on Beekeeper. Plus, sad about the end of Coachella? Never fear, not when you have part one of our Vancouver Summer Festival Guide. See what the Anza Club is all about in our venues section. Learn about the fictional band Wet Leather in Textually Active. As always, find out about the latest and greatest music, both live and recorded, in the Discorder calendar, under review and real live action section. And don't forget about our feature on Music Waste, which takes place June 4th to 10th. And meet DJ Smiley Mike and DJ Caddyshack, hosts of Trance and Dance, in our On the Air section. All this and more from Discord, that magazine from CITR 101.9 FM, supporting local music for over 25 years. Despite the fact that 8 in 10 Canadians are against warrantless and costly online spying, the government remains stubborn, set to cement this scheme into law. With their huge PR budget, they've unleashed a reckless and irresponsible campaign that suggests warrantless collection of our private data is on par with a phone book. We can't let them trick Canadians. Go to www.openmedia.ca now to find out what you can do to get involved and stop this smoke and mirrors campaign the government has started. And this is The City on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and also syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca. And uh, you can find out more and uh, check out our archive of uh, podcasts at thecityfm.org and also on uh, Twitter at thecity underscore FM. So... And now I have Ian Mass on the line, and Ian is a South Vancouver uh, resident, and he's been active um, in uh, trying to preserve um, agricultural land um, on the Aval- historic Avalon Dairy site um, in uh, in South Vancouver. So, Ian, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome, Andy. So, can you tell me um, what's been uh, what's what's going on with this site? Well, this is the. Uh, uh, Apparently, until it closed just a couple of years ago, was the oldest active dairy farm in British Columbia. It's uh, the Avalon Dairies. The house was built. The whole farm was established back in 1908, so it goes a, a long way back. And uh, the the uh, Avalon Dairy owners, the Crowley family, have been selling off pieces of this over the years. But there's uh, there's actually two sites uh, they're adjoining that are left of the original dairy. There's the old Avalon Dairy site itself that was active until a couple of years ago. We used to buy our milk there. Many, many people in South Vancouver bought their milk and cheese and all of that stuff there uh, until just a couple of years ago. And then right next door to it is the Vancouver School Board Nursery site, uh, which uh, uh, is actually double the size of the uh, of the uh, Avalon site. So there, there's two kind of agricultural pieces there, legacy pieces left. Mm. So what's um, what's being proposed at this point? Well, the family sold the Avalon Dairy site just last uh, late last year uh, for uh, a goodly sum of money. It's it's not clear exactly how much, but at least over six million dollars. Uh, and they can put uh, the the new developer uh, the the whole zone the whole site is zoned uh, single family. So they could subdivide it all quite legally and uh, put 
13 single-family homes on on that site um, and actually demolished the house, even though the house is a heritage uh, A-class, which is the, the highest heritage value you can get. So, uh, but if they wanted to do that, they could do that. Um, but the developer is interested, I'm not speaking too fondly about developers in general, but this one seems to be more interested in, uh, well, what many developers are interested in. If you give them more density, uh, they may do a few things for you. <laughs> and um, so that's what we've approached them with the idea, uh, along with the city of Vancouver and the Vancouver School Board, of is there some way for us to begin to think about uh, an agricultural, a heritage and agricultural legacy for this project, one that would support uh, urban agriculture, that would support learning, since there's the school board already owns the site. And in fact, there's three schools, three alternate schools on the site right now. Hmm. Uh, and so there's a there's a and there's some real interest from the sustainability group, both at the city of Vancouver and with the school board, in talking about this more and seeing how this can happen. Now we spoke with the developer about this, and uh, he, uh, with the help of the city, he's interested in pursuing this a little further. Um, but there's always the issue of more density, which I'm not sure if the community is going to be too happy about that. Before we talk any further, just to give people uh, a sense of where this is within the city, what are the, the nearest cross streets? Sure. The, uh, most people would probably know this as four, East 41st and Nanaimo, but it, it's actually a bit away from that. It's, it's on East 43rd and Wales. Mm-hmm. But since uh, probably virtually none of your uh, listeners would know East 43rd in Wales, just let's say 41st and uh, 41st in Clarendon, 41st in Nanaimo. So um, certainly um, in within the city, and um, although some of South Vancouver seems a, a little more suburban um, in terms of the built environment than, yep. than the northern part of the city, I live also live in South Vancouver off Main Street. But um, what what about the argument? I mean, Say the developer decides that this, you know, this is becoming a little bit too much work, or it's too costly, or it's a nice idea, but really not, not feasible in their in their mind. Um, does does the community or the city have any ability to say no? We'd actually like to see this this site preserved, and we'd like to see that type of legacy. They don't seem to have that power, the city. Um, we would take, at least with existing bylaws, uh, it is zoned single family, and uh, like I say, the, the biggest lever the city has is the heritage house, a 108-year-old house on the property. It is designated as heritage, but at the end of the day, my understanding of the heritage law is that you can... Uh, you can tear down anything you want, um, as long as you've got the zoning already in place. To uh, uh, you're not asking for more zoning. Mm-hmm. The lever comes in is when the developer wants higher zoning, and uh, and the city can say, well, if you want higher zoning, let's talk about preserving this heritage house or the trees around the heritage house. A beautiful old uh, chestnut trees, over close to 100 years old, I'm told. Uh, uh, around the uh, around the grounds here at the uh, at uh, at the Avalon site, there's a greenway that's been put through on. Uh, they've they never did open up East 43rd, so there's a greenway that goes through 
the property at this point. Again, the Greenway wouldn't stay if they just did it as a single family. So the developers got lots of uh, lots of uh, development uh, uh, tools in uh, his uh, his uh, tool basket. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about that. Ideally, what um, what would you like to see? Well, we got lots of ideas. I mean, I think the one that's got the most legs that I also like, and I'm working with the South Vancouver Neighborhood House and the Clarney Community Center and the Vancouver Fraserview Visions Committee. We've got our committees down here, and you obviously need to bring them on side. But the one that really appeals to us is the whole idea of an urban agricultural agriculture institute. Mm-hmm. Uh, the schools are already here. There is a capacity uh, to put uh, significant community gardens in this and still have the developer have his density. The school board needs to get on side with this. They're thinking of selling that property. And we're saying, well, look, if you're thinking of selling it and this developer's already doing this, let's talk about a this urban agricultural institute that can uh, teach uh, uh, children and youth from across uh, Vancouver, at the very least, about urban agriculture that can be gardens growing that they can be part of so it has uh, so again we can keep the legacy of both the house the farmhouse there's actually two farmhouses on the property one's on the school board site side and one on the developer side so we can keep that heritage capacity but also keep uh, the agricultural legacy but not just as a uh, as something nice to look at but really uh, some uh, significant uh, learning institute or something like that going in the potential's there we'll see so what's uh, what's the timeline on this well that the the development of the developer side because uh, the, uh, there's two sides here uh the school board side and the developer side that's probably a year away from council there's a whole bunch of drawings they need to you know there's a whole bunch of things they need to do so there's a year process to get to a uh, council rezoning uh uh uh, piece uh, the f- school board site. Um, the school board works notoriously slow, so who knows when that one will come? But we're pushing that side, and so we may get some indication in the next couple of months on that one. Okay. Any other final thoughts before I let you go, Ian? Well, it's the last. Uh, it's the last uh, working farm in uh, in Vancouver, other than down in Southlands, and so it's uh, it's worth keeping. It's an exciting idea that. Uh, that uh, moves urban agriculture and food security issues forward. We think it's uh, uh, an idea that's uh, is got its right time and its right place. So we're enthusiastic about it. Okay. Well, thank you so much, and uh, best of luck with that endeavor. Thanks, Andy. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Ian Mass talking about the uh, historic um, Avalon Dairy site in South Vancouver. We're going to take a very quick break. But uh, stay with us. We're going to go to uh, some coverage of the Women Transforming Cities launch um, and uh, learn a little bit about what um, this new organization is doing um, to work towards the ideal city for women and girls um, and what that that looks like. So stay with us. This is CITR 101.9 FM, the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions, and we're also syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. Anta Cecilia Point to lead Musqueam. My name is Cecilia Point. I'm a member of the Musqueam First Nation. 
the Musqueam Nation is holding vigil at the corner of Southwest Marine and Hudson, and we're protecting our ancestral burial grounds, which have been approved for development. So if you'd like to come down and join us, we will be here 24 hours a day until we receive justice. You can bring food or coffee or bring flowers for our ancestors. If you'd like to donate food, call 604-649-5556. And otherwise, just come down and, and spend some time with us and hold up a sign and show your support. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Haichika. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. And uh, now we're going to go to uh, an interview, a very short interview with Ellen Woodsworth. And uh, she's a former uh, city councillor here in the city of Vancouver. And she's the founder of Women Transforming Cities. And uh, this, is at the May, this was at the May 24th launch event. And I uh, caught up with her to ask her about um, the new organization and, and what they have in the works. So, Ellen, can you first tell me what Women Transforming Cities is and uh, the history behind it? Women Transforming Cities is an organization composed of people across Canada uh, that want to see how we could engage women and girls in designing an ideal city for women and girls. And it has birthed itself out of the Women's Advisory a committee of the city of Vancouver and we're going ahead with a launch today that will kick off a series of uh, things that will appear on our website womentransformingcities.org including best practices competition that will open as of tomorrow in which NGOs and government and uh, academics can submit examples of practices of creating ideal cities for women and girls, i.e. safe cities, affordable transportation, housing, and uh, other areas such as leadership in which we really do not have an equitable distribution or a design that, that works for women and girls. So uh, we'll be launching a, a series of cafes that will start in the fall. We'll be having a Pecha Kucha and we will be launching City Through Women and Girls' Eyes, which is a photo uh, competition. And this will be leading up to a conference that we hope to have in June 2013, the day before the Federation of Canadian Municipalities meets in Vancouver, and at which all mayors and councillors from across the country will attend, and we're hoping they will join us the day before and talk about what it is to put an equity lens on city practices so that women of what other, whatever background, whatever age, whatever ability are really um, maximizing their potential within the cities. So that's what we're launching at Vancouver City Hall this evening. And if you'd like to learn more about it, please go to our website, www.womentransformingcities.org. Is the idea to affect change um, within the Vancouver context or more broadly is this a launch pad for uh, initiatives all across Canada and beyond? What's the scope? Well, 
Our organization is Women Transforming Cities International. We're starting with a, a local organization, a metro organization, but we have a national advisory committee and we're linked in with women's groups in Toronto Women's Alliance, the uh, Ottawa Women Plan, Femmeville in Montreal and uh, various groups throughout the world who are working on cities issues. So it's uh, we decided because Vancouver was hosting the Federation of Canadian Municipalities in Vancouver next June, it would be an opportunity city to uh, begin the organizing, but we are certainly working with and supporting other women's organizations who are working on cities issues um, in many different places from Turkey to uh, Kenya. And going back to Vancouver, what are a few things that um, would make a, a better city for women and for girls, um, and how would this uh, impact uh, social equity more broadly? Well, I think the key issues for women are housing, affordable housing, real affordable housing, and housing for families. And by real affordability, we're talking about one-third of your uh, real income. So if you're on income assistance or on a pension, that would be one-third of that. Safety is a huge issue for women in the city. Uh, transportation is another issue. Most women don't have enough money for a car, so they rely on public transit to be available 24 hours 7 um, and we're talking about leadership, that only 21% of electeds in Canada are women and almost no uh, women mayors. And if you put the full equity lens on it, you, it's very visible that there are almost no First Nations women elected to public office. And uh, we in Vancouver, where you know over a third of the population is of Chinese origin, we don't have a single Chinese woman uh, councillor, although we had one in the past. We've had two, actually, Maggie Ip and Jenny Kwan in the past. And we did have one, um, Angie Todd, Dennis ran for COPA as a mayoral candidate quite a number of years ago. So we need to make sure that the leadership potential of women who really understand what's happening at the grassroots level is fully facilitated. And this is a way to draw attention to the fact Vancouver is not the number one city in the world for women and girls. And that was Ellen Wood, Woodsworth, excuse me, and she uh, is the founder of Women Transforming Cities. And uh, that was uh, her speaking to me uh, just actually before the May 24th launch event at City Hall here in Vancouver. And uh, you can find more about Women Transforming Cities at the website, uh, womentransformingcities.org. And uh, just to add a little bit more to that... Um, the working definition uh, for an ideal city, uh, which they're using, is an ideal city is a city that is responsive to the priorities, perspectives, and expertise of the diversity of its women and girls. An ideal city is a city in which women and girls participate significantly and equally in the electoral process and in municipal government. An ideal city is a city in which the political processes promote women of all ages, identities, socioeconomic status, religion, languages, and status in the shaping of cities. An ideal city is a city in which local government actively promotes the quality of life of women and girls. An ideal city is a city in which the budget reflects the city's commitment to equality and equity between women and men in all their diversity. And uh, they're working with a number of key partners, and uh, they've identified elected officials, unions, women's groups, uh, professionals, academic uh, community groups, um, and young women and girls um, 
uh, as partners in making uh, this transformation uh, happen. So, and and um, Ellen mentioned a number of upcoming stuff, and they're trying to tie this in with um, the upcoming Federation of Canadian Municipalities uh, meeting in June 2013. So, um, Look, look for more coverage on this here on the city um, and uh, certainly um, something to check out online, uh, womentransformingcities.org. So we're going to uh, do a quick music break um, and uh, wrap up the show. In 10 minutes, we've got uh, Flex Your Head coming up at 6 p.m. here on CITR 101.9 FM. And again, um, you can find uh, our past podcasts on the show's website, thecityfm.org, and check us out on Twitter, um, the city underscore FM. And also on Facebook, um, the city is uh, searchable on Facebook as well. So lots and lots of ways. And also um, send your thoughts to me. Um, if there are stories that you think should be covered um, or interviews or commentary, um, you can send that my way at andrew at thecityfm.org. So um, would really love to hear from you and um, at any point if you're listening and you have questions or thoughts and uh, you really want to want to discuss that I encourage you to call in um, here live on CITR 101.9 FM at 604-822-2487 604-822-2487 and um, unfortunately for CJSF listeners um, you won't be able to do that live but you can certainly get in touch with me um, by email so we're going to go to a track um, now from Brastronaut and this is from their recent release and uh, we'll uh, be back shortly so I hope you enjoy this one
And that's Brastronaut uh, with their track Francisco. And that's off uh, their recent release um, titled uh, Mean Sun. And uh, just to follow up on um, why transforming city, transforming women transforming cities, excuse me, is such an important initiative. Um, I'm going to give you a bit of a, um, a short clip, um, but this is Penny Gerstein, and she's professor and director of the School um, of Community and Regional Planning at UBC, and she talks about why um, we need to address um, issues in the city um, with an equity lens. Vancouver is actually more unequal than any other Canadian city. Of 24 cities in Canada, Vancouver has the largest and fastest growing income gap between rich and poor. In Vancouver, 80% of single parents are headed by women. Uh, the incidence of poverty uh, for all single parents in Vancouver is over 50%, and 70% of headed, headed by an Aboriginal parent. But at the same time as the, this growing income gap between men and women, it's been widely recognized that women have the potential to be the engine of socioeconomic and political progress. Addressing gender inequalities are crucial factors in enabling women to transform their lives and the lives of their families and communities. Um, furthermore, women suffer disproportionately from the effects of climate change, which is on our, our radar a lot now, and natural disasters, and can often adequate, ad advocate most strongly for more inclusive adaption, recovery, and reconstruction. So what are the key issues in cities that most dramatically affect women's ability to further their lives and the lives of their children? Uh, Canadian women tend to live longer, earn less, do more unpaid work, unpaid housework and childcare, have more difficulty finding affordable housing, and experience more violence than, than Canadian men. These unique challenges in relation to income, child and dependent elder and disability, disabled care, transportation, personal security, and the needs of, of children define the complex interdependencies of women's lives. Housing, child care, public transit, and personal safety are key issues that cities can address to further women's lives. And that was Penny Gerstein. And I'm going to post the full, um, her full address to the launch at Women Transforming Cities at thecityfm.org. And you can uh, check that out um, when you get a chance. So uh, it's uh, just come to the end of the show. And um, I want to thank you for listening. And again, uh, you can find uh, this show as a podcast at thecityfm.org and uh, a full archive of past shows um, and information about how to get in touch and um, propose or uh, discuss something that, that you think should be covered on the show. And again, thank you um, uh, for listening in. If you're listening on CJSF 90.1 FM in Burnaby and CJSF.ca. And uh, we'll be back next week for another edition of The City. Thank you again for listening and uh, going to leave you with the track uh, from Apollo Ghosts.